Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there. You're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. My- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Zach Twomley. You're a history friend, or maybe you're a brand new listener. Either way, this is episode 36. So if you just jump in here, you're probably not going to know what's going on. So maybe don't do that. However, if you do enjoy not knowing what's coming on, or maybe you're just listening to see what we're really all about here when diplomacy fails, then come on in. The history is brewing and it's ready for your consumption. If you're wondering how we managed to release so many episodes over the last few days, pretty much one each day considering how busy people were a hundred years ago, thanks for that, people a hundred years ago, then I should explain to you, first and foremost, that this podcast is a listener-supported podcast, supported by people just like you. Yes, that's right, you, listening right now, wherever you are, and wherever you get these podcasts from, you are a major reason why I'm able to do this as part of my job. I would never be able to go into so much detail as I can without your support. So if you would like to contribute towards this and get some pretty sweet things back in return, you know what to do. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. 
If money isn't your thing, well, if giving me money isn't your thing, then of course I understand as someone who does not like to give money to anyone ever under any circumstances unless they have a dog. I can completely get that. However, if you would like to support in other ways, telling people by word of mouth is still one of the best, if not the best way to spread the word of this show. You are far more likely statistically to actually care about this podcast if one of your friends or someone you respect recommends it to you. Certainly much more likely than on one of those Facebook ads, which makes you like this page, then charges me for that like, and then I never see you again. So it's much better when you do this for free, and it doesn't cost me anything, and I'm never paying for Facebook advertising again because it's completely useless. In any case, please do tell your history friends all around you about this show and what we're doing here, exactly how crazy about history we are, and that you as a history fan can really take part. If you're interested, you can take part through the delegation game, where you send me an avatar or a figure that you create, and we work through the Paris Peace Conference. Well, at least this alternative version of the Paris Peace Conference, where you can have a profound role in shaping exactly what happened 100 years ago as we make an alternative version of the Treaty of Versailles. Hopefully, maybe we won't even make a Treaty of Versailles. Maybe we'll just all start fighting amongst one another. Who knows? But if you would like to see what we're up to, Make sure to listen to the Delegation Game episodes, and if you want to actually have a role in doing that kind of very interesting and exciting stuff, then head on over to Patreon and stamp your visa by paying $6 a month. History podcast role-playing is something I've never seen done anywhere else, so I'm really, really excited about this, and I'm also really hopeful that no one will steal this idea. Until then, though, please do check out the Delegation Game coming out every single Saturday, And in the meantime, keep on up to date with the Versailles Anniversary Project. Like the Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at WDF Podcast, where I moan about Brexit, fawn over dogs, and share an on-this-day piece about something that happened in history however many years ago on this day. It's all set up, so I don't actually have to do anything, but if you would like to go and follow me on Twitter, that would be swell. We've over a thousand followers, so we must be doing something right over there. When Diplomacy Fells is a one-man show, but... Because you guys are able to support us so well, it often doesn't seem that way. It seems like I have the most loyal and wonderful history fans out there. So thanks so much for that. And yeah, let's get started into the show. Again, a little bit shorter than other episodes, but I think you'll agree there's not that much harm in that considering the frequency of the episodes lately. So without any further ado, let's get into this. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 36. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 36 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Yesterday we looked at Belgium's case, and it was put before the Council of Ten on the 11th of February, 1919. It was full of grand hopes, and some massaged truths, but Paul Mons would prove at least partially successful in getting what he wanted. With the 11th of February passed... It fell to those assembled at the Supreme War Council on the morning of the 12th of February to accomplish a long-running task. The armistice with Germany was up for renewal, but how were the Allies to ensure that the Germans complied with its terms? This question had been addressed, in fact, by a committee set up expressly for the purpose of untangling the riddle, and it had also plagued the Allies for several weeks, even before that had happened. By 11am on the 12th of February, this committee had had nearly 36 hours to deliberate though, and it was time to hear its conclusions, which hopefully would solve that key problem. Although this episode is smaller and perhaps even insignificant in the grand scheme of the Paris Peace Conference, it's important and deserving of an episode all by itself, because in my view, episodes like these, where we literally work through the minutes of the Council of Ten bit by bit, Underline the genuine grind that the Paris Peace Conference represented. Not sure whether or not you may be feeling like this podcast has turned into an actual genuine grind over the last few days, but either way, if it has, then at least we're channeling the inner spirit of the Paris Peace Conference. So yes, the most genuine, sincere experience of the Paris Peace Conference you'll ever get is by listening to this show. Oh boy. Probably not the best advertisement for this show, but there you go. We're going through everything that happened. And we're demonstrating the fact in the process that what you got when looking at this history was not the idealised image of the big three walking and smiling or frowning at one another. In fact, a great portion of the time was taken up discussing procedure. Yes, I know, yawn, but still, the order of decisions which were to be made also had to be discussed, and the potential for compromises also had to be found wherever they could be found. This episode contains all such ingredients, as the French and Americans finally managed to come to an agreement. Without any further ado then, I will now take you all to the morning of the 12th of February, 1919. The meeting of the Supreme War Council opened with an important distinction. Addressing the work done by the committee established specifically for the purpose of imagining ways to force German compliance with the armistice terms, it was asked by the Italians whether the terms of the current armistice and of the final peace treaty were to be different, particularly the military and naval terms of the peace. In response to this, Clemenceau clarified that the final peace treaty with Germany, whenever it would actually be arrived at, that this would be different to that laid down in the armistice, 
and he told the Italians that he wanted to get on with the process of crafting this treaty now. However, the French Premier said, the Supreme War Council had not assembled for that critical purpose. That is, they hadn't all gathered that morning to hammer out the final peace treaty with Germany. Instead, they'd gathered to examine the report of the new committee, which had been created to recommend the best ways to enforce German compliance with the armistice terms. The reason which Clemenceau gave for not creating a final peace treaty and putting the world out of its misery was a simple one. Time was a-wasting. The armistice was due to expire on the 17th of February, which was only a few days away, so it was vital that some means were devised if the Germans decided to resist whatever new provisions the Allies tried to insert. Since the final terms of the concrete peace settlement with Germany could never be settled before the armistice expired in, what is it, five days, that other mission of forcing Germany to accept what had earlier been laid down in the provisional armistice was their declared mission for the day. Balfour, standing in for Lloyd George, who was back in London, made the point that it was easier to insist on no new armistice terms and to insist only on changes to the previous version of the armistice were absolutely necessary. Each month since the 11th of November, Balfour reasoned, certain figures had used the occasion of the renewal of the armistice to make new demands on Germany, but this policy was unsustainable and liable to cause unrest and instability in the long run. Let the Germans know where they stood with only the most minor of changes as the situation also changed, for example, in Poland. But at the same time, let there be no doubt that the Allies were adhering to the original terms. Woodrow Wilson agreed with Balfour's more gentle, you could say, approach, and he added that the final peace terms should now be devised. But in the meantime, the current terms of the armistice should be presented to the Germans, and there should be no room for debate at this provisional stage. The President had not addressed the key question of how to compel German compliance with the current terms, though, an omission which Clemenceau could not help but notice. Clemenceau's response was long and quite rambling in nature, but the gist of it revolved around the idea that the Germans had to be pressured now, while the Allies possessed such a preponderance of military force. Otherwise, it was believed that the Germans would take advantage several months down the line when the demobilization process had been advanced. According to the minutes of the Supreme War Council, on the morning of the 12th of February, Clemenceau remarked, Friedrich Ebert had said, We will not accept terms which are too hard. And why was this all done? To exercise a detrimental influence on our morale, to frighten us, to make us fear that if the Germans were angered, the war might begin again. Nobody was less desirous than myself of seeing the war begin again, but it must not be forgotten that we were still at war. War continued in the minds of men, the same minds that had made the War of 1914. The German nation had not suffered from invasion. Its aggressive morale had been preserved intact. On the other hand, the Allied Conference could not have acted differently, nor more quickly than it had done. Vital preliminary work had had to be done. It had, however, been accused of impotence in the press, and probably the Germans had come to think that us Allies were quarrelling and that we were incapable of action. I would implore the Supreme War Council not to confirm the Germans in that idea. We summarised what Clemenceau had said, but in the actual minutes of the Supreme War Council, Clemenceau would actually apologise for the length of his speech, which by Council of Ten Standards was not especially long, in fact, so it's interesting that he did apologise. Maybe he was trying to come across as conciliatory as possible. Clemenceau had hovered around several issues during the speech, though. 
the key theme being the fear of what the Germans would do in the future if faced with weakened Allied resolve and smaller armed forces in the West. France had been mutilated in people and in land, with three million either dead or wounded, and her industry deliberately and systematically destroyed. Clemenceau even highlighted the issue of cattle which the Germans had stolen or killed, inflicting a profound misery on the peasantry along the Franco-German border in the process. Clemenceau's reason for making such a long-winded, multi-layered speech seems to have been to remind those present of France's position, an exercise he felt compelled to engage in regularly, as he was beginning to sense, perhaps accurately, that Wilson's idealism was clouding the realities of the day. But what was Clemenceau's solution for enforcing German compliance, that key question? Well, first of all, Clemenceau let it be known that France was more desiring of any other power of a final peace. Yet, he urged that the same pressure which had been brought to bear since the 11th of November should be applied now and relentlessly. The Germans, Clemenceau said, could not be allowed to smell either division or weakness, or they would pounce upon it. Balfour commended Clemenceau on his presentation and urged him not to imagine that the Allies intended to reduce their forces or leave France in danger. The aim was the creation of final peace terms, and he put down some terms which the Supreme War Council would hopefully be able to agree to regarding the armistice. These four points that Balfour just quickly put down were intended as a kind of stopgap until final decisions were made. It entitled the Allies to renew the armistice in its current form indefinitely to draw up detailed land, sea and air conditions which would be presented to the Germans in due time, to hold off on the delivery of raw materials until she did agree to the preliminaries, and similarly to hold off on the delivery of food until such a final treaty was signed. Having delivered these points, the Supreme War Council broke up for the moment, on the understanding they would meet again at 5pm. But what of the terms of the committee which had been formed for the express purpose of imagining the solution to all these problems? The Allies had before them this report, which had been worked on throughout the 10th and 11th of February. So what did they do with it? Well, it's worthwhile examining in brief how this committee, constituted of the four major military figures which the Allied had, planned to enforce German compliance. Under the self-explanatory heading, Means of Enforcing Compliance, so yeah, it didn't give anything away there, this committee ruled that it had divided its conclusion into two parts led by the Military and Economic Subcommittee. So yes, this committee that the Allies had created, once they had created it, decided to create their own subcommittee, just because. Are you confused yet? Well, that's okay, because all you really need to know is that these individuals recommended more of the same. There was no revolutionary ideas about how to force the Germans' compliance. The Economic Subcommittee actually dwelt on the question of food imports more than any questions of money. Food was to be withheld, essentially, until the Germans complied, and the blockade of German coasts was to continue to guarantee cooperation. The military subcommittee had the more important job, one which would reassure Clemenceau, due to its efforts to vastly reduce the German army, to only 25 divisions overall, with just five on the Western Front, to France's 51. So, obviously, France shouldn't have a problem dealing with them. The reduction of her armed and naval forces also addressed the issue of Poland, who the Germans were instructed to cease from combating. If Germany refused to comply with these terms, then it was declared that first, the blockade of her coasts would hold back even the most negligible humanitarian deliveries of food to her people, so the blockade would get worse in other words, and second, the Allies would assume complete freedom of military action. 
Although they had been armed with these suggestions, by the minutes, it doesn't seem like the Supreme War Council had spent much time addressing these points made by the committee that they had appointed specially for the task. Thus, once the meeting opened again at 5pm, Clemenceau delved straight away into the question of reducing the German army, a pivotal element in guaranteeing German moderation and strengthening the Allied hand. Wilson picked him up on this and clarified that the real difficulty of the whole situation was one of procedure. In the past, it had been assumed that the final peace preliminaries would be arrived at and that the various aspects of these preliminaries would be negotiated upon among the Allied powers. The wrinkle, though, was in the question of the military terms, for the simple reason that, as each month went by, the demobilisation process continued, which weakened Allied power. Thus, rather than address the preliminaries as a single bundle, Wilson recommended, surprise, surprise, that a new committee be established with the express purpose of devising the final military and naval terms of the peace before any other peace terms were devised. The committee which had just sat, don't forget, had only been tasked with making recommendations for the armistice, phase one of the peace process, while this newly proposed committee would be tasked with making concrete recommendations for the final peace settlement, in phase two and three, when the preliminary and final peace terms were developed. Good grief, these conversations tend to confuse more than they clarify, guys, especially since there was, in the end, no preliminary treaty, and only the final Treaty of Versailles. So, in other words, the Allies skipped a step when they realised how slow it was all going. Yet, something we can take from all these deliberations is the fact that the Allies had finally accepted that the military terms which Germany would have to comply with would have to be settled first, settling the military terms before the economic, social, geographic, etc. would help confirm where the Allies stood, and would also demonstrate what minimum force the Allies would need to have to guarantee security. On the other hand, the danger which the Germans posed could be effectively reduced as soon as was possible, since military terms included discussions about significantly reducing the size of Germany's army by taking advantage of the current preponderance of Allied power and disabling any future capacity within Germany to launch a military challenge to the peace settlement. The two Supreme War Council meetings, in other words, served as a roundabout way of confirming that, before any terms of the preliminary peace treaty were signed, the armies of the interested powers, central powers and allies alike, would have to be addressed and confirmed. The reason why the French were so anxious, the Poles threatened, the East in flux, and the future so uncertain, was because the German army remained supposedly intact, but obviously not completely intact, but in the Allied estimations they were still formidable enough to mount some sort of challenge. Nullify the German army and the German lion would be reduced to a kitten, which would refrain at the same time from resisting any measures that the Allies decided upon down the line. This perspective was expressed in the minutes by Woodrow Wilson, who is recorded as saying, All we need contemplate was the amount of armed force required by Germany to maintain internal order and keep down Bolshevism. This limit could be fixed by the military advisers. In general, I feel that until we know what the German government was going to be and how the German people were going to behave, the world had a moral right to disarm Germany and to subject her to a generation of thoughtfulness. I therefore think it possible to frame the terms of Germany's disarmament before settling the terms of peace. I am encouraged in this belief by the assurance that the military advisers could produce a plan in 48 hours. 
It might take more than 48 hours for the heads of government to agree on the plan. It is not my idea that the armistice should be protracted very much longer, but a definite term could not be fixed until the governments had matured their judgment considering the disarmament of Germany. Once this point was settled, the Germans could be given short notice to accede to our demands under pain of having the armistice broken. The main thing was to do this while our forces were so great that our will could not be resisted. The plan, I propose, would make safety antedate the peace. This was the crux of the issue, making the Allied position safe while negotiations were held. Until the Allies felt ready to talk with Germany, Wilson expressed the idea that there was no reason to let up. Germany should not be threatened or treated unjustly, but she should be confronted with terms that would reduce her military capacity, and in the interests of the general, final peace, the Allies would enforce these terms upon pain of a renewed war. On this point, the French and Americans saw eye to eye, even if these military terms had the potential to cause disagreement. This was a large part of the reason why a separate committee would be so convenient, because it would prevent the Council of Ten from arguing about it, and it would also enable the Allies to focus their attentions on other matters while the military advisers got down to business. By making safety antedate the peace, as Wilson put it, military security would be established before anything else, and the Allies would feel free to negotiate without the cloud of a potential German resurgence hanging over them. It had taken a while to reach this conclusion, but having finally arrived at something akin to common ground, vis-à-vis the German military question, the central purpose of this Supreme War Council had been reached. The deliberations of the Allies had been greatly aided by the findings of the committee that had been established on the 10th of February, but this consensus was more likely the result of pressure and changing minds. Clemenceau noted that Wilson would soon be leaving for the United States, and during this month of absence, the military situation would remain in flux. This was another reason for sorting out the military terms for Germany ASAP, with demobilization a dirty word for Clemenceau and a necessity for the absent Lloyd George, the solution seemed to be to neutralise the German military menace, thereby making demobilisation more palatable and also rational. These issues would be dealt with by the newly created committee, elected on the spot by those present on the 12th of February. Like its predecessor committee from the 10th of February, which, don't forget, had been tasked with finding a way to enforce German compliance to the armistice terms, this new committee would have towering responsibilities thrust upon it. Unlike its predecessor, though, Wilson declared his satisfaction with the new committee's authority to sort through the military terms. Clemenceau, in other words, would not have to wait until the president returned in mid-March before moving forward with that committee's recommendations. This was another important step because it meant that genuine work could be done even while Wilson was gone. It was to prove even more important that This committee was invested with so much authority because from the 19th of February, in other words, about a week from this day 100 years ago, Clemenceau also found himself unable to attend, but for a very different reason altogether than that of the President. Wilson opined that it would make more sense to declare that the armistice would be in place indefinitely rather than renew it every month and that it would stand until the preliminary peace articles were set down, which would replace them. As we know, the Paris Peace Conference did not go from armistice to preliminaries to treaty, but from armistice to treaty, skipping the middle part, 
with a whole load of mess in between. This proposal at least underlined the importance of speed for the proceedings. The Allies would not waste time debating new armistice terms each month, which would save them a good bit of time. Instead, they'd declare the armistice as it now stood to be the standing peace terms, with the view being that, within a month or perhaps more, they can move on to the next step. Saving time was now upheld as a paramount concern, and the delegation of responsibility to the new military committee demonstrated this, as did the decision to stop renewing the armistice each month, and simply renew it indefinitely. With these matters decided, those assembled took a bit of time summarising Belgian and Polish decisions before adjourning. So if you're still with us after all that, I hope you understand what just happened. But if not, and if you're wondering what the Supreme War Council meetings actually achieved on the 12th of February, and why we've bothered covering them when such detail can tend to bore people as much as they can confuse people, then hopefully my little explanation here will make sense of it all. I wanted to examine these meetings first and foremost because, judging by the language used over the first two weeks of February, The plan for renewing the armistice with Germany and the dilemma over the military terms to be imposed upon Germany were the two most pressing issues, especially for France. By removing Germany's capacity to avenge itself upon France again, it was anticipated that much of the urgency from Clemenceau's speech would have evaporated, and more time could be spent discussing the League of Nations. Thus, Wilson had come around to committing the Germans to a generation of thoughtfulness, as he put it, rather than dealing gently and making no new demands as he had initially, apparently, wanted to do. Discussion over the protocol of the conference had ruffled feathers in the past. Wilson wanted the League to be established and clarified before the Germans were dealt with, while Clemenceau was on the other side of the spectrum. This decision reached on the 12th of February served as something of a compromise. The Germans were not completely dealt with, but there was a commitment here to address their military capacity before any preliminaries were discussed, and this was something Clemenceau could accept. The solution was also acceptable to Balfour, and probably would have been acceptable to Lloyd George, because the central aim of demobilising the British army could still be achieved in time. Lloyd George's desire to rid Britain of the burden of supporting all these soldiers was exacerbated by the fear that if Germany demobilised, then hundreds of thousands of unemployed would only worsen the German country's position and render her vulnerable to civil war or Bolshevik revolution. By committing to sort out the military questions first, and by isolating them from the preliminary peace treaties and giving them their own freaking committee again, the Allies took an important step towards achieving peace of mind for its three major actors. If all went according to plan, then the Germans would be reduced significantly in their military capabilities, demobilisation could continue unabated because the French wouldn't fear the outcome, and all before Woodrow Wilson or David Lloyd George returned from their homes. This new committee would be named the Naval, Military and Error Committee, with the Big Five nominating three delegates each for the committee, one man to specialise in each theatre from each delegation. We'll certainly be meeting the Naval, Military and Air Committee in the future, so next time we see them, we'll make sure to say hello and remind us where this guy came from. The stage was set on the 12th of February then, and the Allies could expect to hear back from this committee within a few weeks. By then it was imagined enough work would have been done that the preliminary terms of the peace settlement with Germany would have been reached, just in case though, 
It was just as well that the armistice was extended indefinitely into the future. Any decisions made by the Naval, Military and Air Committee would be presented first to the Council of Ten and then to the Germans, thus bypassing the morass of other questions up for debate and certainly avoiding the opinions of the other delegations representing the minor powers. Clemenceau and Wilson at least agreed on that. It was the Big Five that would hammer out the peace and the terms for Germany's armed forces and nobody else. Since it was well known that on the 14th of February Wilson would be returning to America, Clemenceau believed establishing this point represented a victory in its own right. The president had conceded the military point after several days of quarrelling, and even if Wilson was likely to take issue with whatever severe terms were handed back by that committee, there was at least now the possibility that Clemenceau could secure the French interest before the League dominated proceedings. To a certain extent, then, Clemenceau had kind of flipped the order of the conference. Now it would be possible to talk about Germans and their armies before the League had been fully defined. Yet, on the other hand, this was only possible because all of the talk about German military capabilities had been handed over to a committee rather than being discussed within the Supreme War Council or Council of Ten itself. And much remained undecided. The exit of the President, combined with the absence of the Prime Minister, also threatened to complicate matters. While Clemenceau worked his best to mould this compromise into a kind of victory, Wilson turned his attentions now to the matter which had always interested him more than the size or strength of Germany's army. For the next two days, the 13th and 14th of February, these were to be chock-a-block, with discussions about the League of Nations, its mission, its manifesto and its main supporters, just as they had raced to sort out some form of solution to the German problem before the armistice expired, now the Big Three moved under the pressures of detail and time to craft the covenant of the League of Nations before Woodrow Wilson was forced to return home. Where once, perhaps, Wilson had imagined that he would have been returning home for good on this date, much had changed since the months before to persuade him that the peace conference was quite unlike anything he had been led to expect. The fundamentally unchanged aspect of the conference, and of Wilson's character, though, was the central role the President planned to have in crafting this institution. The real test, of course, would come when Wilson attempted to present his baby, the League of Nations, back home in Congress. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.